today with Professor John Zimmerman. Thank you, Professor. It's great to have you on for the second time of the Path to Follow podcast. It's great to see you. My pleasure. Good to be here. So, Professor, what's been going on with you lately at, at Penn? And, um, and I see that, you know, every time I Google your name, it seems like the, another book appears. And you're, you're writing books, you're writing articles. If you could give us a rundown on what's been going on in your world lately, that would be awesome. Well, my world, like all of our worlds, I think, has been dominated by the Israel-Palestine conflict in the past, uh, you know, six weeks or so, and specifically by the free speech implications of it, right? Um, I think that, unfortunately, we've entered into another round of cancellations and firings, and um, uh, bullying is really what I would call it. You know, uh, the vast majority of Americans are not hard-edged ideologues. They want to be able to talk about these subjects. But there are also bullies on the land who are making life extremely difficult for people that express an opinion on any side of this issue. And so that's what I've been fighting. Hmm. And I see that, you know, you've written some articles on this topic in pretty recent days. Yes. And, and some of it picks up on the new edition of my uh, Culture Wars book. I wrote a book in 2002 called Who's America? culture wars in the public schools. And I had to update it in 2022, because if you haven't noticed, there have been some culture wars in the public schools. And it's really an effort to make a plea for a kind of dialogical approach in the classroom. So, um, you know, if we're talking about Israel-Palestine, you would want to present the story of Israel, both from the point of view of Israel, the War of Independence, and also from the point of view of most Palestinians uh, who called 1948 the Nakba or the, you know, the disaster. Um, I think both of those narratives are real, both of them are powerful, um, and they should both be presented. Um, but how many people on any side of the issue actually want that? I think there are some, but we haven't made our voices loud enough. Yeah, so one of the things I've been thinking a lot recently is I'm teaching a U.S. history course, and uh, it's my first year teaching U.S. history. Usually I teach American literature, um, which I'm doing also, but I've really enjoyed teaching U.S. history. I've just have had a lot of issue, issues or difficulties or challenges in trying to pre present f facts and information to students when there are so many different sides of every issue and there's so, you know, books have been written and biographies have been written that disagree with each other. And it's very hard to tell students, hey, this is actually what happened because it's just one side or it's one viewpoint of, of the truth. Um, so it, you know, for me, for somebody who's doing research on my own and trying to learn on my own, it's awesome because I'm, I'm fascinated by the different points and, uh, views and opinions of people in history, but also, um, relaying that information to students is, is definitely challenging. It is. And look, you know, as teachers, we all have our biases as well, right? We're also political creatures and political actors, Right. And I think one of the things all of us have to be on guard against is uh, the danger of indoctrination, right? The danger of imposing our points of view on our students. Um, you know, I, I take your point. It's a real challenge to present a multiplicity of views. It's a lot easier just to present one. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't really prepare people well to be citizens, right? If you want to be a member of Saddam Hussein's bath party, that's an excellent pedagogy. Right. Or, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 Bolshevik era Soviet Union. Um, just tell them the truth. The truth is the regime has defined it. 
and leave it at that. Um, but if you want to actually prepare people to be citizens in a democracy who think for themselves, you cannot just present one view. That does not prepare them for the job of citizenship. Mm -hmm. So in your experience teaching history, Professor, what are some, I guess, strategies in the classroom that you, you feel like allow students to explore these, you know, various ways of discovering the truth? Because, you know, just me standing up there talking to students and them writing right. it down doesn't seem to doesn't seem to work. And it doesn't work for me either right. because I'm aware of how many other viewpoints there are out there. Yeah, well, look, you can't do everything, right? None of us can. And um, obviously, we're all limited by time and other kinds of constraints. But, you know, I, I think that presenting at least two views that are different from each other about anything that you're teaching is always a good goal, right? Um, uh, uh, so, um, you know, uh, if you're, if you're uh, for example, teaching about the war in Vietnam, showing a clip of an anti-war protest or protester, a, a speech, and then showing a clip by somebody in favor of the war, people are going to learn a huge amount from that. They're going to learn, obviously, how contested the question was. I mean, most people don't realize this, but up until the very end, most Americans supported the war in Vietnam. Um, you know, the, the anti-war movement looms so large in our consciousness that we tend to forget that. Um, uh, and so they'll they'll see how contested the question is. And also, I think they'll start to make connections to more recent events. Um, uh, you know, uh, obviously, the United States fought very long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which only recently wound down. Uh, there were proponents and opponents of those wars as well. Um, it's not the same as Vietnam, um, but it's it was contested. Uh, and they can start to see that all our wars have been at some level. Yeah, actually, just today we were talking about the Mexican-American War and the annexation of Texas and yes. this idea of manifest destiny. And, you know, so many Americans and including James Polk, who we we're focusing on, wanted to expand and move westward and take over these right. territories. But there was also a, a pretty substantial swath of Americans who were like, whoa, slow, slow your roll a little bit. Let's let's, yes. you know, let's proceed cautiously. Thoreau. Yes. And also yes. a young congressman from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. Um, uh, who also opposed the Mexican War, and that, um, uh, and 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 uh, that adds some irony to the fact that once he became president, uh, and uh, and the Civil War began, uh, he ordered the jailing of uh, northern journalists and other people who he suspected of being sympathizers with the South, that is, of opposing the Civil War. So he was himself a war opponent that jailed other war opponents, <laughs> and and came to regret it, by the way. And yeah. told his generals to reopen some of the newspapers that he had ordered closed. Yeah. Yeah, I actually thought of you um, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the gag rule and John Quincy Adams and this, uh, the stifling of voices. And, um, you know, you write so much about that today and how, you know, how free speech is on the forefront of our, our minds as communication develops and you've got Twitter and you've got you know, canceling of people and silencing of people and just all of these debates that are happening in our era actually did happen, you know, since the beginning of our country and, and especially during Correct. John Adams' time in office, actually Correct. after office. Yeah, I'd add two things. First of all, there was no social media then, right? Um, so it was a lot easier to get a word out 
to millions of people, whatever that word might be, and however accurate or inaccurate it might be. So that's point number one. And point number two, I think the gag rule um, underscores something that we also tend to lose sight of, which is that most of the free speech warriors in our past were people on the political left. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they were um, voices for what today we would call social justice, um, voices uh, speaking up for people that had been oppressed or um, diminished in some way. So obviously the gag rule is an effort to suppress anti-slavery material from the floor of Congress and indeed from the U.S. mails. Um, uh, and, and it all began after Nat Turner's rebellion, which sparked that censorship campaign. And again, that's a censorship campaign against abolitionists, right? Against the free speech of people that want to raise their voices against slavery. And that's really important because a lot of my students imagine free speech today is something that is conservative or benefits, you know, whatever term you want to use, straight white men. Um, but it has been across time, the tool and often the only tool of social justice, which is why all the great social justice warriors, including Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., they were all free speech zealous because they understood that if you took away free speech, they wouldn't be allowed to make their campaign against the oppressive circumstances that they that they encountered. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and we talked about Frederick Douglass, too, and how much he focused on education and learning how to read, because he understood at a very young age that this was his ticket. This was his entire voice, right? Learning how to read and even tricking people in his young age to learning how to read, just scraps of you know, pieces of the Bible that were in the gutter. He would try to pull them out right. and, and have people teach him how to read because he understood that this was his, um, you know, this is his whole ticket into uh, freedom. Right, right. But, but also, of course, it was the ticket to fighting slavery, right? It was his personal ticket, absolutely, right? His own ticket to freedom, but it was also the only mechanism that abolitionists could use to challenge slavery, which is reading literacy words, right? Mm -hmm. That's the point, right? Literacy was a weapon of the oppressed. Uh, and if you take it away, and that's, of course, why the slaveholding class, why the white supremacist class didn't want people to read, because they knew that Frederick Douglass was right. They agreed with Frederick Douglass, actually, right? Mm -hmm. they, had, they agreed about the, let's just say, the potential and the danger of reading. But again, none of that's going to work if you don't allow people to speak as well. So, Professor, let me ask you a little bit more about uh, free speech today. And, and you know, I, I think ChatGPT is something that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just because of how often I've encountered it in the classroom and artificial intelligence and this, this new frontier, I think, in the world of education. Um, you know, you think about social media you think about how news spreads so quickly today and how news can be drummed up, um, you know, at, at, you know, at very quickly now, like fake headlines and misinformation can be spread very quickly. And this, this yep. advent of artificial intelligence, uh, it, it worries me a lot, although it is very exciting and interesting to me at the same time. And I'd love to hear your perspective. I know you've written a lot about AI well, and well, ChatGPT. Well, yeah. 
Well, Jake, you know, first tell me how you've encountered it. I mean, obviously you're on the front lines of this as well. I think it'd be useful for uh, for me and for your listeners just to say something about how you've encountered it or dealt with it. Well, we've had very long discussions in the English department about ChatGPT and its uses and its benefits and really how interesting it is. Um, but we have also seen students obviously just use it, turn it in as their own work and get caught because it's very easy to spot. Um, you know, most 16, 17 year olds in my classes make at least one mistake in, in three paragraphs of writing and ChatGPT doesn't. Or they use words that 16 year old English student at Gilman maybe wouldn't. So for me, I, I find it very easy to catch in student work. Um, but I don't know, I've thought differently about it at, at different times. Like I, I, I think history papers and analytical English papers, I'm not going to say that they're dead now, but what's the point in teaching a student how to write this paper that the computer can do so efficiently very quickly? Like I've been trying to use creative prompts and more personal prompts with my students so they actually have to think about things that are going on in their lives and how this character reminds them of someone in their life uh, so that it's not so easy just to, you know, have the computer do it for them. Well, look, all that is real, okay? And all of that is going to be a challenge. And I think, Jake, you put, you, you, you put your finger on it. And my wife and I talk about this a lot. I mean, she's also spent her life as an academician, as an educator uh, in the medical sciences, not in the humanities. But both of us, despite our differences, have spent our lives trying to help people learn with words right? That's what we do. It's our job, right? And the reason we do it is we believe that those capacities are central to not just the human experience, but to my earlier point, to being a citizen, right? If, 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 you, um, if you can't evaluate arguments and if you can't frame your own, you can't be an effective citizen in a democracy. Um, so, what happens when a bot is doing your thinking for you? You know, this is an existential question. And, and, you know, I feel very strongly that those of us who believe in education as a route to citizenship, education as a route to liberation, all the things you were talking about earlier, that we need to be extremely vigilant about proclaiming those values and discouraging young people from the bots. No, and I said discouraging because I'm not gonna police it. And you know, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about this, which you might've seen, where I said, look, my students are adults. They can vote in elections, they can die in wars. I can't and won't tell them what to do. Um, your situation, I think, is a little bit more complicated, Jake, because your students are, most of them, not yet the age of majority. They're not full citizens. Um, mine are. And um, I think it's actually quite legitimate for you to compel some things in ways that I don't, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, that that's, we, we, we put different demands on people and we give them differential um, kinds of autonomy based on their age, right? This is why you can't drive a car when you're nine, right? Or you can't vote when you're seven, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for my own students who are adults, 
I'm, I am not going to um, police what they do. I'm instead going to try to make an argument, a plea for doing their own thinking, even though, to be totally frank, I can't actually enforce it. I have made clear that if you use a bot without telling me, you're plagiarizing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and that, by the way, is the policy of the university, and I think the policy of every university as I know. Um, they don't ban the bot, but they do make absolutely clear that if you use the bot, you have to say so. Now, it's interesting because I've noticed somewhat of a generational divide on these questions. You know, when I go to faculty meetings about it, the younger faculty, as a rule, seem much less exercised and anxious about this subject. They'll say things like, look, there have always been new gains in technology. We've adapted. We'll, we'll figure it out. I'm not entirely comfortable with that blasé attitude because I do think there's something substantively different about a bot that can be iterative. Uh, iterative, iterative, yeah, right, yep, um, uh, rather than simply repetitive. Um, I do think that's something that's fundamentally different. So it's not. So the yeah, comparison yeah. can't be made to the advent of the internet or to the graphing calculator, like some people have, have tried to make. Right, right, right. Because the calculator can help you solve a problem, um, or actually, let me put that differently. The calculator can help you get the right answer to a problem. Um, but the calculator in and of itself can't tell you what the problem is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You've got to figure that out on your own until this thing called ChatGPT, which can do all of that. Um, to your point, it may not do it especially effectively sometimes. You know, a friend of mine calls ChatGPT the ultimate mansplainer because it's always very certain of itself whether it's right or not. Uh, you know, and often it's both, but it's equally certain, right, whether it's right or wrong. Um, but to, you know, to go back to the point about um, uh, 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 about our policies around this, I do think there's an interesting generational difference. And I was at a faculty meeting where the subject came up and um, a professor was talking about a, 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 um, a blogging requirement that she has in her class. So, you know, each week you have to do the reading and you have to react to it, right, on the blog, right, on the class blog. And she said, um, you know, some of the students were having the bot react and just putting that in the space, in the reaction space, and that she was fine with that. Hmm. And, and I said, well, hold on. What if they just went to JSTOR, found a review of the book that you were reading and pasted in the review? And she said, oh, no, no, that would be plagiarism. And I said, what? I mean, this seems like a distinction without a difference to me. I understand the distinction, right? Because in fact, in the case of the bot, you're not actually copying, pasting text. The bot is generating the text. But to me, it's a distinction without a difference because it's still not your work. I understand it has a different provenance than JSTOR, right? Mm -hmm. And that it was created as, as it were on the spot rather than as a prior review of a book. But it's still not something you did. And to go back to the big point, Jake, that you mentioned at the very beginning, it's still a way of aligning or avoiding the kind of skills you need as a citizen and even as a human, right? You need to react or learn how to parse or critique the book on your own. 
And if you won't or can't, I'm just going to say it, I don't think you can be a full human being or a full citizen. Then you're just echoing the bot. It's like you're a bot yourself. <laughs> um, is, is that what we want? Who exactly wants that? I don't, I don't think anybody, probably. Yeah, my only concern is that if, you, if it's not policed, if people are not being held accountable, it is way more efficient in some sense to, you know, even have the bot write something out for you and you can vet it and you can choose, okay, I want to change this word or that word. It still is way more efficient. So if there is no, and I think you're right, I think it is very different at the college level versus the high school level. High school, you need to learn how to write and to think and to compose sentences and this is really hurting you. But for people out in the world who are trying to be more efficient at their jobs, lawyers and, um, Right. Writers and that kind of thing. It, it is more efficient. Definitely. And look, there's nothing wrong with using it in that way. But here's the thing, Jay. If you use it in the way you described, have it create a first draft and then, if you will, critique that draft, you still need the skills of critique, right? And the bot's not going to teach that to you. That's my point. I'm not against ChatGBT. That's like being against air or water, right? <laughs> ChatGBT is here, right? Right. Um, I'm not against it, right? Um, uh, I'm trying, like I think you and every other educator, to figure out how to use it appropriately. And it's interesting, the, the example you gave, because that's often one that gets trotted out in these discussions. What we need is we need to teach people to use it as a first draft right? and then critique the draft. But here's my question. Where are those critiquing skills going to come from? The answer is not chat GBT. Yep. Right? So in order to do the exercise that you're describing, i.e. a first draft that you then critique, you need critiquing skills that the bot can't provide. Mm. Interesting. I'm also curious about AI and art and AI generation on social platforms and how that intersects with free speech, um, meaning like, misinformation is drummed up all all the time and people tweet it out or post it and you know it causes a whole lot of problems what are we going to do when you can create something so realistic like a video or a photograph that looks perfectly real but is artificially generated and now that's out on the internet is is do you see any hope in the world when that arrives It's really scary and it's especially scary to think about bad actors like dictators uh, of countries utilizing this, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we're fortunate that we still live in a democracy, right? Um, and that's not to say that everything's perfect here because you and I know it isn't, but we can have this conversation and we can say things like, like, what should we do when the bots are creating false information, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think there are a lot of countries where even that line of discussion would now be taboo only because the people in power in political power are using the bots to create this misinformation right Right. so i'm not answering your question because of course i don't know the answer but i do feel incredibly fortunate just to be having this dialogue right um neither of us are a robot neither of us are willfully spreading misinformation we understand the danger that the bots pose in spreading misinformation, and we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Isn't that remarkable, right? And nobody is going to listen to this 
and come in the night for us or our families. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to suggest that we should be jailed or tortured or killed for doing what we're doing right now. Um, uh, and, you know, all these things are threats. And because I'm an educator, of course, I devolved to that as a solution for everything. Right. Um, but, um, and I'm, I, I'm sure you do too. That's why we've devoted our lives to this, right? Um, uh, I do think that from the earliest ages, we need to teach young people how to discriminate as best they can between the real and the fake. Now, to your point, AI might get so good that this becomes impossible, but we're surely not there yet. And, you know, I've read that in countries like Finland, you start this training in first grade. In first grade, they start showing you websites and saying, okay, is this legit or not? Yeah. And how would you know? And obviously, we're trying to do that here, but we are late on the draw. So, you know, um, until AI takes over everything and makes it impossible for any of us to decide what's real or not, we educators have to be teaching people how to make that decision. Yeah, and that's always been the most important skill for me in, in learning. And I took this class in college uh, with Jill Abramson, actually. Um, and it was a very small class, and it was during the, I think it was during the 2016 election. And all we did in the class was go through various news sources and talk about, you know, what is factual here and what is biased. That's fantastic. And it was... Who, who was yeah, who was the instructor again? I missed that. Uh, Jill Abramson, and she was oh, yeah. uh, she was the editor of the New <laughs> yeah, York the, Times. Yeah, the and, former Times person. Yeah, yeah, and she was just brilliant, and it was the perfect time to be taking this class because I never looked at a news source again as just giving it to me straight. Like, there's always an angle. Right. There's always a bias, and um, it's, it's really beneficial. I mean, it's the best skill right. that I think I learned in college is being able to decide what's BS and what is actual. Right. And, I, and Jill Abramson, I think she won a Pulitzer or several. Um, and, uh, you know, as I often tell my students, I'll never forget my first Pulitzer. You know, the others have been nice, you know, but that <laughs> first one, that was special. Yeah, look, I think everyone should receive a version of that course. And obviously the version is going to vary depending on their age and their level of sophistication and everything. But even little kids can do what you were doing with Jill Abramson, right? I mean, obviously they'll do it at a different a pace, right? And with a different cadence and sophistication, right? But that's precisely what we need. And another way that I would I would um, parse this is, you know, teaching people to be skeptics rather than cynics, right? A skeptic is somebody who wonders what is true. And a cynic is somebody who says that nothing is true. Mm -hmm. Those are two different things, right? And the cynic, of course, is the obverse of the credulous, I believe everything person, right? The credulous, I believe everything person believes everything, and the cynic believes nothing, right? They're kind of cousins under the skin, right? And what we need is to, is, is to produce skeptics, um, people that come to all these, uh, um, uh, all these questions with a critical and a questioning eye rather than a cynical one. Um, because the cynical one um, actually uh, reinforces all the horrible themes of the moment. So it's all BS. So why bother? Why even bother doing the exercise you did with Abramson? Or, yeah, or don't Everything. trust anybody. Exactly. Everything is a lie. 
right? Everyone's got an angle. Everyone, everyone is working the system somehow, right? And and you know, I I uh, um, I know we've been talking for twenty minutes, and the name Donald J. Trump hasn't come out, hasn't come up yet, which is remarkable. But Trump. <laughs> You know, I have a grudging admiration for Trump because Trump has been able to weaponize in horrible ways precisely the dynamics we're talking about. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, my belief about Trump is that he's not uh, he he he's not a fascist or totalitarian. What he is at the end of the day is a cynic. Now, obviously, as Orwell taught us, cynicism and authoritarianism can be closely linked, right? Because one of the ways you make the case for authoritarianism is by persuading people that everything's bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. So you might as well go with me, right? At least I'm honest enough to say that we're all liars. Mm -hmm. This is deeply cynical, right? But Trump is a master of it. My favorite Trump poster, and I'm putting favorite in quotes because I'm appalled by him, is the one you see sometimes in, uh, you know, out of the camp uh, campaign trail, Trump, no bullshit. Have you seen that one? No, uh, I haven't. And it's so interesting because to me, you know, it actually underscores a lot of his appeal. Um, Trump, uh, you can say a lot of things about him, and I won't say anything more except to say that he's not putting on airs. He's exactly what he seems, which is an honest liar. I know that sounds strange, but that's what I believe he is. He lies constantly, but I think he believes most of those lies, right? And I think he's honest in the way he presents himself, um, which is as a cynic, um, which is as somebody who believes in nothing except his own power. He doesn't try to hide that. Um, and so he has done a remarkably effective job, again, putting effective um, in quotes, at fueling all the kinds of cynicism that we're discussing here. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Trump and, you know, not only Trump, but but anybody with his sort of uh, widespread appeal, I think the Internet age is like perfect for that type of person who just says whatever they want because we live in such a clickbait culture. We want right. we want on our phones whatever it is is going to stimulate us amidst all right. of the other information. So, you know, oh, I know that the technology matters hugely. I mean, we've always had conspiracy theorists, right? So January 6th is a conspiracy theory. That's what it was, right? I mean, <clears throat> Trump got enough people to believe the conspiracy theory, which was that the election was stolen, right? But it's so much easier to get people to believe that with these machines, right? The John Birch Society thought that fluoridation was a communist plot, right? Everyone who grew up in Washington, like me, has really good teeth because they fluoridated the water. But a lot of places didn't, in part because of that, right, that fear. But the fear was in a minor key because the John Birch Society had the leaflet, right, to persuade people that fluoridation was a communist plot. Now... Just a couple of clicks, you can reach millions of people. That's a different media environment completely. Mm. Well, um, Professor, I know you've you've got to run, but it's uh, it's great to yeah, see you. Teach. Can you believe that? What, a what, big shot like me? What teach or what course are you teaching now? Um, well, I, I always teach an undergrad and a grad course, and the undergrad course is a first year seminar called "Why College?" Question mark Historical and Contemporary Perspectives, Ooh. and that's the one I'm going to go teach in a moment. So, 
you get, uh, it's, it's my favorite class I've ever taught. I get people on their first day of college, literally their first day. And, you know, I, I, I show them the title of the course and you've seen it, you registered for it. Let's start. Why college? Like, what is this? Like, why is there a quad and a chapel and a lawn and fraternities with Greek letters and climbing walls, right? Why is this here? Uh, and what's what what I love about the class is obviously I teach at a very elite school, just like you attended. Um, people are extremely well educated, but often their education hasn't included questions about education. Yeah. Um, just because it's their ether, it's their water, right? Right. They've knew that they were going to go to a college, probably an elite college, since they were three, just like you did. Um, and, and, you know, fish don't generally notice the water that they're in. They just kind of swim around it. Um, and so often even highly skilled, highly motivated and extremely well-educated students haven't actually been asked this question, huh. like, which is, you know, WTF, like, what is this? How did it get here? Why are we doing this? And, and uh, is it worth the, the price tag when you get out? Uh, <laughs> Yes, that too. How did it get so expensive? Who pays, right? Yeah. Um, and remember, it costs vastly more than the ridiculous sticker price we're charging, right? Yeah. College is even more expensive than you think, right? Right. Because you know, if you pay full price, which you know most people don't, it's eighty grand. But each student costs vastly more than eighty grand. It depends on the place. Hmm. That's right, and there are a lot of reasons for that too. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, I've got a. That's I've got another a episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. Th thanks for the conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great to see you. Appreciate okay, your time. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.